Hey there, it's Janet Wynn, a church member here at Normandale. You're listening to the sermon podcast from Normandale Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope that this sermon is encouraging for you as you seek to know Jesus better. If you are helped by this sermon, we want to invite you to support the ongoing ministry of Normandale. You can do that by going to normandale.org slash give. And thanks for listening. Just in case you didn't notice, I'm not Mason. Uh, I'm about twice his size, but half his preacher. So uh, I'm just kind of off the bench this morning because he's sick. So I'll do the best I can. So is everybody comfortable? You know, for those of you that, that were at the old church, we had those nice wooden pews that were beautiful, but they were very hard. And uh, these seats are a lot more comfortable. And being comfortable is good, but, you know, sometimes we can get too comfortable. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, about 12 years ago, right before our oldest daughter's wedding, uh, I went with a friend of mine. We, we were going out to get some heifers out of a pasture they weren't supposed to be in. And so we're riding along. And I've, I've ridden since I was a kid. Uh, in fact, I remember uh, they used to take baling wire and tie a stirrup below the actual stirrup so I could climb up onto the horse. Uh, so, you know, I'm riding along there fairly comfortably. And then with in just a moment, as we're going up this embankment, the horse gets spooked and he bucks and bolts all at the same time. I remember in that fraction of a second, three things went through my mind. One, you're coming off this horse. Two, get your feet out of the stirrups. Three, here comes the ground. And then just a you know, fraction of a second, all those things uh, came through there. But, you know, luckily I landed on my head and only broke three ribs. Uh, I was able to escort her down the aisle a few weeks later. Uh, I want to talk about this morning, I want to talk about John 3.16. And the reason I, I talk about that is, you know, kind of brought the horse story up is because it, we can get too comfortable if you've grown up in church, you can probably recite John 3.16 by heart. But sometimes it can become just going through the motions. John 3.16 is one of the most iconic verses in the Bible. In fact, even non-believers can quote that usually. I think there's even a wrestler that goes by that name. But, you know, I want us to, to kind of get out of our comfort zone and take some time to really think about and pray about and meditate on this verse to really get, get the real meaning out of it. Uh, I want us to do three things. I want us to look at what does it say, what does it not say, and what does that mean for us as we leave here. Now, what makes it so iconic as a Christian is the fact that it's basically the gospel in a nutshell. And even though it doesn't really mention shepherds or mangers or wise men, it lies at the very heart of Christmas. Because, after all, Christmas is about the gospel. So, And just, just in case you don't happen to know that verse, let me read it to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. 
Lord God, we pray for your spirit to be upon us this morning, Lord, to understand the truth that you have for us in this verse. To understand who you are as God, to understand who Jesus is and what his life means for us. Help us to focus upon that, Lord God. Help us to not be distracted. Help us to hear your voice in these words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so once again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. The first two words of that, for God. This verse, like the entire Bible, begins with God. Everything begins with God. Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God. God created. He was in the beginning. In fact, he was before the beginning. Because he couldn't have started the beginning if he hadn't been there before the beginning. That's the eternity of God. And it's important for us to understand the eternalness of God, even though it kind of blows our minds sometimes if we try to think about that, what's before the beginning. He spoke creation into existence. He did it with the power and the authority of his word. He didn't need a, a, a magic wand like Harry Potter. He simply spoke and everything obeyed. So everything that exists, he created. And it follows that since he created it, since he created everything, everything belongs to him. And knowing this kind of answers that question, who is God to tell me what to do? So one of the things I want us to do is I want us to understand who God is this morning. So just to kind of give you an analogy, you've probably all heard of Leonardo da Vinci. He painted the iconic Mona Lisa. Now that painting of that young woman was commissioned by her family. But unless you're a trivia master or you took art appreciation in college, you probably don't know the name of her family. In fact, we only really know her name because, after all, it's called the Mona Lisa. Unless, of course, that was an assumed name, but I don't know. So the thing is that no matter who claims ownership of it now, it always belongs to the master that painted it. The painting is Leonardo's. He drew the lines that framed her face. He formulated the pigments to give it color. He combined those pigments to bring it to life. The brushstrokes that made the details are his. And in the end, the master signed it. It belongs to him. Now, if those who possess the Mona Lisa, the Louvre or whoever happens to have it through the ages, had they started to flake off the paint or to paint over it with their own, uh, make their own self-portrait, the master would have been been rightly incensed that they did that. And if he could, he would have gone and taken it away from them, brought it back to his studio, and began to repair the damage that they'd inflicted on it. In a similar way, God is the master of the universe. The power and authority of his words directed every force, every electron, every muon responding to his command and taking its place in the physical world. 
And in the end, he signs it. The universe is his. Then kind of continuing our hypothetical analogy, Adam and Eve tried to paint over God's perfect masterpiece trying to create something else, but something imperfect in its place. We even continue to do this today. And the divine master was rightly incensed. Hence he cast out the humans from his good and perfect world of life and living into their self-created world of death and dying. Then, as only a master can, he set about the work of repairing the damage. But the thing we need to remember is that his repairs were not just to restore the masterpiece to its rightful state, but also to restore those who damaged it, us. As part of the restoration, he came to us. Unlike other religions of the world, where God's wait for man to find their way to him or earn their acceptance, our God came down to us. He came to rescue us because he knows that we'll never find our way to him. He knows we'll never be able to earn his acceptance. So he gives it. He knows we'll always be distracted by our own selfishness. In spite of our betrayal of him, he initiated our restoration. And he did it for us. He gives us the faith that we need to believe. He gives us redemption that we cannot earn. And in that, he gives us freedom and life and eternity. He's taking every step needed to restore the masterpiece and us with it. This is the gospel. And it began as this verse begins with God. Now, I've taken a little bit longer on this, these couple of words that start the verse because I think it's important that we understand who we are and what we have done to deserve the consequences of our sin. Namely, the wrath of the master, the wrath of God. But also to understand the reality that, that God is of who he is and that he is the author not only of creation, but also the author of our restoration, of our salvation. So, why does he do this? You know, if we've so severely damaged the universe, why not just kick us out and be done with it? Well, it's because of the next part of the verse. For God so loved the world. The reason that God created his masterpiece in the first place and the reason he wants to restore it is love. He created it in love. Now, our modern culture has a, a, a new saying that's very popular that love is love. But we all know that that's not true. Even those who use it know that it's not true. In our language, we love all sorts of things. We've created uh, euphemism. For example, in the 60s and 70s, love was equated with sex. Oh, let's make love. Oftentimes, love had very little to do with it. We apply love to a lot of things, like I love tortilla chips, but not the same way I love my kids. I love Indiana Jones, but not the same way I love Janet. It's a different kind of love. For example, 
Ronnie Stats and I have been meeting once a week for coffee uh, for coming on 30 years. Uh, we, our hair was all the same color at the time. And I love Ronnie Stats. But I've been married to Janet Wynn for 37 years, and when it comes to how much I love Janet, Ronnie doesn't even come close. Sorry, brother, but that's just the way it is. And my love for Janet is deep. But my love for God is deeper. And not only that, no matter how deeply I love my God, His love for me is inconceivably greater. In fact, 1 John 3 tells us that God is love. He's the personification of it, the epitome of it. He loves me and he loves you enough to include us in the restoration of his masterpiece. Now, sandwiched in in those words there is this little word, so. Now, in the Greek, that word can be translated two different ways. It can be uh, translated to mean quality as in his of his love says the quality of love, for example, he loves us in this way. Or it can mean the extent of his love, as in how much he loves us. And I think both of these apply. But keep that in mind, because we'll come back to that in just a minute. Okay, so for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now God gives, but he doesn't give the way we give. Our world, in our world, giving is, is more transactional. I'll give, but I want something in return. Even if it's like, I want to, you know, I'm going to make a donation, but I want a coffee cup or a t-shirt or my name on the back of a program. I'm going to give, but I want something in return. If nothing else, I want a tax write-off. You know, and it's, it's not really a cultural thing so much as a human thing. We're all selfish. We want everything to be the way we want it. And of course, we think it should all be about us. Well, not about you, more about me. We can't give like God gives. We're just not naturally selfless people. We don't give unconditionally. We're about pleasing ourselves. You know, as sinners and as enemies of God, we don't know how to please God. We don't know how to save ourselves from death. And even if we did know, it would be beyond our ability. But fortunately, it's not beyond God. He initiated our salvation by sending Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us, who died in our place, who took our sin upon himself. And in one of the worst business transactions ever, he took our sin and he took his righteousness and placed it upon us in his place. He gave his life so that we could have eternal life with him in heaven. Now remember I said so could be translated two ways, quality and quantity. Giving his very life for us is how he loves us. But the fact that he gave his life for us is also the extent to which he loves us. Think about that. Giving up a child to death is not necessarily a foreign concept to us hypothetically. It's every parent's worst fear. And we cope with it by certain, you know, 
theoretical or psychological means to kind of put that out of our minds. But it's very different if you actually have to do it. In those cases, we struggle and we fight and we dig in our heels every step of the way. We would not give up our child easily. But God gave his son freely. It was his idea. He knew it was the only way to restore the perfection of his creation. This is the extent of his love for us that God so loved the world that he gave his son. And there's even another layer to that if we kind of dismiss ourselves from the modern world and think back to the time period when this was spoken. Giving your child's life to save someone else is a terrible thought. But as terrible as it is, we don't realize the depth of it when he says his only son. You see, in those times, the firstborn son was everything. Just as the first fruits represent the entire harvest, the first son represents the entire family. Now remember when Mason preached on the prodigal son, the older son who stayed behind was the eldest. And when he and his father were talking, his father said, everything I have is yours. As the firstborn, he inherited all the stuff. But he also inherited the caretaking of the family. Any sisters or brothers or, or parents that, that survived the, the father or that responsibility is passed on to that firstborn son. He was the leader of the family. He was the future. And if he was lost, so was lost the future. So it was a devastating thing. God loves us so much than that he gave his only son in our place. He initiated, he gave it. He endured that kind of loss that we might gain everything. Well, how do you, re how do you receive this? How do you receive this restoration? Well, to simply believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him now, everyone from Ted Lasso to Dalai Lama talks about belief. But the value and the power of your belief really depends upon what you put your belief in. Culture tells us to believe in yourself or believe in your politics or to believe in your nation or to believe in your freedom or to believe in humanity or whatever, so on and so on and so on. The problem is that all these things change. All these things are temporal. All these things can be taken away from you. Only God is constant. Only God is eternal. And when we put our belief in him, then we have something solid that we can anchor to. All these other things pass away. And they can't save us. Only God can. And he knows this. And that's why he, he entreats us all the time to come to him. Because he knows that's the best thing for us. He sees what we cannot see. And believing in Christ is not an intellectual exercise. 
tallying up pros and cons and things like that. It's a spiritual relationship. It's mysterious and it's powerful, kind of like falling in love. And depending upon the experiences of your life, believing may be hard to do. You may have believed in some of these temporal things that have disappointed you and let you down. Maybe even devastated you. But God says, I can help you with that. In Mark 9, a father brings his possessed child to Jesus. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the, the father of the child cried out, I believe. Help my unbelief. We may struggle with our believing. We may struggle with, you know, through the experiences of our lives of, God, I, I, I struggle with believing in you and, and, and believing you are who you say you are and that you'll do what you say you'll do. But he says, like this man, help my unbelief. And Jesus will do that. If you want to be rescued from the destruction of your sin, he'll give you the faith you need to do that. You have only to ask him. What about the outcome of believing? Well, I guess to understand the outcome of believing, you also need to understand the outcome of not believing. God exists. Whether you believe in him or not, he exists. Whether you admit it or not, he exists. He's the creator of the earth, the heavens, the universe. What he created was good, but humanity messed it up in the Garden of Eden. And we continue to follow their lead and mess it up even today. They sinned against God. Sin is rebellion against the sovereign God, creator of the universe. It's his universe, so it's his dominion. And he established certain rules and laws to govern it. Most recognizably, I guess, the Ten Commandments. These aren't just arbitrary rules, but they're rules for our welfare to protect us and to grow us like the rules at home that parents establish for children. They're not just arbitrarily there to, you know, so they can go, well, I'm the parent. I can do what I want to do. No, they're there because we want to protect our children. We've made those stupid mistakes. We don't want them to have to suffer through that. So we make those rules. Similar fashion, God has no, God knows everything, so he knows what's going to happen if we make that stupid decision. So he's put rules in place. And even before Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, God said, don't don't eat of that tree. Don't break the rules because if you do, you'll die. So God didn't make up the punishment after someone had already broken the rules. He established that at the beginning. Obey me and live, disobey and die. And sure enough, Adam and Eve broke the rules. And when they did, death and sin entered at the same time. And death and sin became part of our humanity the same way DNA is. If we believe, we're saved from eternal death. If not, we're doomed to it. So in this verse, you know, perish means to die. 
Death is a reality of this physical mortal existence. The older you get, the more you understand that. Because your parts begin to run out of warranty. And you have to go to the doctor. You, you become a first name basis with all of your doctors. And you hear those, those, those very encouraging words of, well, at your age, dot, dot, dot. You know, death is a reality. Uh, as Jim Morrison said, none of us gets out alive. But what happens when we die has been speculated about for millennia. Some say that when you die, you go to the good place. Everybody, regardless. Kind of like all dogs go to heaven or something. Some say that we're reincarnated back into the human experience so we get a, another try to get it right. Some say that we become one with the universe. Still others say we go into oblivion. Which makes life sort of pointless at that point, doesn't it? Only Christianity says that death sends us into eternity as ourselves with the identity that God gave us. We're not absorbed into nature. We're not gone out into a limit. We are who we are now, only better. In terms of what the Bible describes then, there are two options for our afterlife. For those perishing as a result of, without salvation, as a result of not believing in Christ, it's like the scourge of the demons described in Revelation. Torment without death, judgment without escape. It's the wrath of God. Not the least of which is the absence from God. Such a fate is for those who do not believe. So what about those who do? What well, says they shall not perish, but they will have eternal life. This then is the other choice. For those who believe, for those whose name is written in the book of life, Jesus said, I have come to bring you life. But he doesn't just give us existence. He goes on to say, I've come to bring you life and bring it to you abundantly. To bring you a life that is full and wonderful and amazing beyond imagination. It's a life in the presence of those whom you love and more importantly, in the presence of God. John 4.12, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. Romans 8.15, Paul writes, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So God is expecting us. If we have accepted the gift of Christ, God is expecting us. He's prepared a place for us to receive us. And even more amazing, he is adopting us as his children. Our restoration has gone beyond just going back to exist in the garden. It's gone to exist as a child of God. And those that have gone before us as believers are experiencing that at this moment. They're living in the presence of their heavenly Father. So that's the promise of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him 
shall not perish, but have eternal life, an eternal life with him. It's the gospel in a nutshell. A promise that we do well to remind ourselves of, not just at Christmas or Easter, but all the time. But very quickly, I want to clarify a couple of things about what does this verse not say? Well, first of all, it does not say that God takes pleasure in judgment. In the verses immediately following John 3.16, Jesus says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But whoever whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This tells us that God's not an I gotcha God. He's not looking for things to find things wrong with us. He isn't looking for reasons to kick us out of heaven. He desires what's best for us. In Genesis, he tells Adam and Eve not to eat of one particular fruit, and yet there's this huge garden of all this other stuff. He tells them if they eat of it, they'll die. They chose to eat the fruit. I mean, we can blame it on the serpent, but the bottom line is Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit. They made their choice, and when they did that, sin enters the world and along with it death. And Romans 6.21 tells us that the consequences of sin is death. So when Jesus tells Nicodemus that his purpose in coming is not to judge or to condemn people, he makes the point that when we choose to sin, it is we who condemn ourselves. Because Jesus' purpose, Jesus' reason for coming was to save us from sin and consequently from death, from condemnation. The second thing that it does not say is it does not say that salvation requires a code of conduct. We are not saved by Jesus and whatever. Now it's true as James points out, that works and faith go together, but our works should be a reflection of Christ in us. We are not saved by works. We are not saved by Jesus and doing good things. We're not saved by Jesus and making good choices. We're not saved by Jesus and anything else you can think of. We are only saved through Christ Jesus. We don't have to clean up our act to come to Christ. God will send his Holy Spirit to convict us of the sin in our life through the process of sanctification. But he doesn't require that as a prerequisite to coming to him. We don't have to stop cussing and stop, you know, trashing the eagles and things like that to become to go to Christ. God will convict us of those things. But we have to recognize the fact that we're all in a different point in that process. If I become a believer at 50, I've developed a lot more bad habits than if I become a believer at 10. I had a Sunday school teacher one time who described sanctification this way. He said, he had a professor who said that our sanctification is like a funnel. We all enter in at the rim of the funnel. Jesus Christ is at the center of the funnel. And over time, over our spiritual journey... God convicts us through the Holy Spirit of the things in our lives that we need to get rid of. And as he does that, he narrows that funnel. He doesn't expect us, when we first believe, 
to automatically just become perfect and zip to the center. He works on us and he trims us and he shapes us and he sanctifies us over time. The thing is that we're all at different points in that process. Some of us are up near the rim. Some of us are maybe closer to the center. But we're all in that process. None of us starts at the top. We're all shaped at different points along the way. The thing to remember, though, is that it's God's funnel that shapes us, not your funnel or my funnel. It's God's funnel. And he is shaping those people along the way. You know, don't try to make someone else's sanctification imitate yours. The Holy Spirit is taking them where they are and changing them to where they need to be. If he needs your help, he'll ask for it. He probably won't. But he may. You know, you can speak into people's lives when they come to you for help, but don't, don't offer too much. Which brings us to the third thing. It does not say that for those in Christ, uh, there is condemnation. Romans 8.21 says, for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So believing in Christ, we don't receive condemnation. But I think it also means that we don't ex extend condemnation to others. Is Jesus, if you've read the Gospels, did Jesus extend condemnation to people or grace? Now, we want to show them compassion and point the way to redemption in Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28, Jesus gave the disciples and us instructions. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all the things I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Nowhere in those instructions does it say that we're to attack or demean or to degrade or to put down or abuse or pass judgment or condemn the lost people of this world. How many times have you told a lost person or seen someone else tell a lost person, you need to stop doing that? And they immediately went, Oh my gosh, yes, I'm so glad you told me. And they stopped. Probably zero. Do you know why people do the things that they do? They're lost. Think about that. How much do we as believers struggle with our sin? And yet we have the Holy Spirit fighting with us and for us. Those people are on their own. They need our help. They need to be shown the way. In fact, if we follow the example of Jesus, we'll reach out to those people with grace and compassion, sharing with them the saving truth of Christ, not hitting them over the head with our own self-righteousness. Okay, so what does all this mean? What does this verse really mean for us? Well, as believers... It means that we are loved more than we can imagine and that our eternity is secure. We're adopted by our Heavenly Father and we are waiting for the day to go home. But while we wait, we're not to be idle. We're to be productive. 
We are to go out and find the lost and the hurting people of this world and point them to the cross. Praying for them, encouraging them, loving them even when they may be unlovely. Every year I, I like to read A Christmas Carol by Dickens. and It never gets old to me. I always love it. He uh, always turns out good in the end. And it's a really short book, so I'm a slow reader and it, it helps. In the first chapter of it, Scrooge is met by the ghost of Jacob Marley, his old partner. And Marley starts explaining to, to Scrooge the fact that, you know, his life needs to change. Scrooge kind of tries to justify himself. And what he says to Marley is this. He says, but you were always a good man of business, Jacob, faltered Scrooge, who now began to apply this to himself. Business, cried the ghost, wringing his hands again. Mankind was my business. The well, common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop in the ocean of my business. Marty makes a good observation, I think, for us as Christians. Our business is indeed mankind. For our business is the gospel. The living out of that gospel with mercy and benevolence and the fruits of the Spirit. So that our telling of the gospel may be underscored by our actions. So that as many as possible of mankind may be saved. On the other hand, if you're one of those who does not know the salvation of Jesus Christ, then this verse means that the God of the universe is today offering you eternal acceptance, eternal life, eternal love. You don't have to wait until you're good enough because you never will be. You don't have to do some great task or some ritual because he's already done everything that's required. All you have to do is accept it. Romans 5 tells us that while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the clean, doing all the right things people, but for the ungodly, which is really all of us. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were all sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? It means that Jesus Christ is standing beside you today saying simply, come with me. All you have to do is believe. In Romans 10, Paul follows up this thought, but he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. One confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's John 3.16. Well, as the band makes their way up here, you may be asking yourself, well, you know, does not knowing Christ mean I'm going to have a miserable Christmas? Not necessarily. I mean, your life need not be in shambles for you to come to Christ. 
But knowing Him will make your life better and fuller. And it will also give you hope. Hope and assurance in the future. The future of this life and beyond. Knowing Jesus Christ is not going to make your life a bed of roses. It's not going to make everything always go great. But it will give you the power of Christ to walk with you through those hard times, those dark times. To deal with the things that this life gives us. As the band plays, I'll be down by these doors if anyone needs to pray or have questions. Uh, I'll be there. And let's, let's pray before we go. Lord God, pray in the name and the power of Jesus Christ, Lord God, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. That those of us who know you, Father, that you will encourage us to be about the business of mankind, the business of sharing the gospel, the business of evangelism. For those that do not know you, I pray, Father, that you will draw them to yourself. That they will hear your voice saying, come. Come, I accept you as you are. Come and follow me. I pray, Father, that all that happens, Father, is glorifying to your name and honoring to you. In that name we pray, amen.